Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with Rob Fredericks, the Executive Director of the Santa Barbara Housing Authority. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because as we know, here in Santa Barbara, um, housing you know, is such a huge topic and all the forms of housing, affordable housing, middle income housing, we just don't have enough housing. And so Rob is somebody who's been dealing with this and helping to bring solutions to the community for a long time. So we're going to talk about everything that's going on. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks for having me today. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you. No, I'm really honored that you take some time here to talk. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, before we get into the micro stuff, I want to talk big picture, affordable housing in Santa Barbara. And what are the challenges? What, what does it mean? Um, you know, how bad is it, the situation for somebody who wants to, to live in this community, um, both in the context of what the housing authority does, but just general, like how, how tough is it to find a place in Santa Barbara? It, it is generally a really tough market. And historically, it's been a tough market. Ever since I've been working at the Housing Authority, which has been for the past 25 years, we've faced an incredible housing shortage uh, throughout, the, the, throughout the South Coast. And it's, it's not just a Santa Barbara problem. When you look at a macro level, uh, the state has a, a housing deficit of three and a half million homes. Mm-hmm. And about 1.2 million of those are needed for capital A affordable housing, which means that for low income households, that, that means those that earn 80% area median income or below, those income levels are set by HUD annually. And for Santa Barbara, the um, low income l- limit for a family of four is just over $100,000 uh, per year. For a family of two, it's $80,500 per year. And a household of one, that's an income level of $70,050 per year. So to put in context, that's, you know, people don't often look at those income levels uh, in, in Santa Barbara, that's pretty high. And you have a service industry in Santa Barbara where a lot of people don't make that kind of income, hit those income limits. So we have a lot of low-income families, seniors, and disabled individuals that need affordable housing, and we don't have enough. Um, we, uh, on our housing authority wait list, we have just over 4,000 households in the South Coast that need affordable housing for low income that we just don't have enough of that to provide. Over the years, we've done an admirable job of providing uh, affordable housing for the community. And our mission is to provide essentially for low income households uh, as a housing authority. We've produced uh, over um, 1,370 hard units that the housing authority owns and manages throughout the city across 70 different uh, unique developments. And then we also have the housing choice voucher program that we uh, administer. It's a federal program where the HUD provides housing authorities money to pass through to the local landlord community to help assist with the rental costs for low-income households, where the low-income household, they only pay 30% of their income for the contract rent. The housing authority voucher pays the difference between 
the 30% of the family's income and the contract rent. So it really makes things work. Unfortunately, there's just not enough available again to help everybody in need. And what you see happening are a lot of consequences with, with families being pushed out of the communities where they were born and raised. Uh, kids having to, to move uh, away. Uh, you have commuters commuting in from North County or uh, Ventura uh, daily because they can't afford to live in the community where they work. And that causes a whole lot of issues, not only um, uh, social issues with the families themselves, but environmental issues and just a lot of impacts. So we haven't been providing the housing that's needed. And when you have that, that disparity of the supply and demand, you're, you're just gonna have a spiraling increase of housing costs in the community because the demand outweighs the supply and developers can essentially uh, charge what the market will bear. And, um, you know, and, and property, property owners will, will do what they can to, to charge, you know, to charge the rent that they they can get from the open market. You mentioned uh, a list. So this is a waiting list of what more than four thousand people who are on a list. <laughs> how how long does that date back? So so the person who I mean, how long have some of these people been waiting to get affordable housing? Years and, and unfortunately, and and you know, the people come to us and when they come to us, they need the help now. They don't need the house the help five to seven years from the time that they apply, uh, they, they want the help now. And unfortunately, the average wait time, depending on preferences, if you're a veteran, you get housed above others. Mm -hmm. um, if um, we have some other um, housing preferences to, uh, uh, if, if you're um, uh, homeless and you come through the coordinated entry system of the county's continuum of care, you get a housing preference there. Otherwise, you're going to wait a very long time for that attrition turnover of the vouchers that we have issued in the community. And it's, it's, it's really a tough thing. Like I said, people, when they come knocking on our door asking for help, they want the help now, not five to seven years from now. And the only thing we can offer is get on the waiting list now. And uh, we move that along. We do a mass update annually of our wait list where we send out an update and say, are you still in the area? If so, let us know that you want to remain on the active waiting list. Otherwise, we're removing you from the list. So that's where we are confident that those 4,000 households are active because we do that, we do that uh, purging of our wait list annually. Is it legal? Do, do landlords have to accept vouchers so so you know if there's a, a, a government reimbursement for the rest of it you know in addition to the amount that the person can afford to pay do they have to accept that or is it is it an issue where some landlords don't accept it and that exacerbates the housing challenges it's it's been an issue up to a couple of years ago uh, a couple of years ago sb 329 was was passed. It's a state law that prohibits discrimination based on source of income and uh, specifically prohibiting landlords from discriminating against Section 8 housing choice voucher holders simply because they're a voucher holder. It was meant to put 
put voucher holders on equal footing with other uh, households in the market seeking housing. Um, now, a landlord can still has their their own uh, suitability criteria that they go through um, when they do. They can do their um, their background checks on the uh, voucher holder, and they could legally. Uh, um, decline the voucher holder from renting uh, to the voucher holder based on um, their criteria that they move through, but they can't simply say no to renting to a voucher holder. Before, you would see um, advertisements in the paper. Now on Craigslist is, is the main way people look for rental housing. And you would see advertisements from landlords that said in bold, no Section 8, no voucher holders. That's that is illegal to do uh, since the passage of that bill. Um, some landlords aren't aware of that new law, uh, and they still put out that kind of advertisement, and they still decline uh, voucher holders. So um, uh, it, it is still somewhat of an issue. But with that law that passed, hopefully that'll um, help. Um, there's a movement at the federal level to have a federal law passed as well. Um, to prohibit discrimination based on source of income. And hopefully that'll be passed throughout the country because it, it is a problem throughout the, the entire nation, especially in tight housing markets where landlords frankly don't want to um, get trapped into the uh, bureaucracy of working with a housing authority and having to fill out extra paperwork, do extra inspections to ensure that the unit is safe. They want to um, be unfettered with, with government interference uh, on it. But we try to be uh, a, a very user-friendly housing authority. We do inspections on the same day of, that the uh, landlord requests it. We, uh, we do electronic signatures for contracts. We try to be really user-friendly with the landlord community because if we aren't, the landlords would put up more resistance to the housing authority from working with us. Yeah. So as a reporter, you know, I cover a lot of these meetings. I talk to people on these issues. And uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of the population that is supportive of affordable housing. There are some others, though, who, who take more of a black and white sort of perspective, which is not everybody can afford to live in Santa Barbara. Um, if you can't afford to live here, go somewhere where you can. Can you talk about that attitude and that perspective? And um, is that, does that hold up logically or, I mean, just talk about that perspective. Like, well, go, go to Lompoc, go, go somewhere where it's affordable. Why do you need to live here by the beach? It's, this is expensive. That's a perspective that you've heard. I've heard. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, for me, I, I don't agree with that perspective at all. Um, it's something we always hear, you know, when we propose a new development, we're going to always have a, a, a faction of people who are against the, the development, the development cost to provide affordable housing uh, in, in our community. But it's something that's needed. I mentioned that we have a huge service industry in, um, in, in Santa Barbara and um, people need to really work where they live. We have, there is something called the US constitution which provides for the right to, to travel and the right to live where people choose. And uh, I think that as a community, 
we need to stand up and provide the help for our neighbors that, that need that of extra affordable housing help. Uh, and you can attack it from two different segments. You can provide the affordable housing that's needed. And we should also look at paying a, a living wage in the community to help people afford the higher rents. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're, we're starting to see some movement with, uh, with higher wages in the, in the, the service industry uh, jobs. And I think uh, the, the pandemic showing that uh, um, the historically lower waging paying jobs, now they're coming out of the pandemic and they're needing to pay more to attract people to come back to work, which is kind of a good thing, I think, to help people afford um, where they, the place where they live. So, you know, I really um, would hate to see Santa Barbara become like a Monaco uh, just outside of Southern France where nobody can afford to live there except the ultra wealthy. And, uh, you know, you're forbidden almost to live there. You have, you can come to work here for us, but you can't live here. And that's just bad all the way around. I, I think to have a healthy, vibrant community, we need to be uh, inclusive. Uh, we need more equality. And, um, and to do that, we need to provide the affordable housing that's needed. And like you say, we're always going to have the people on the other side that say, hey, you know, provide it out in the desert, provide a big encampment for the homeless out in the desert and move them all out there. Well, a lot of the people who are homeless, I know because I, I go out every year and do the surveys for the point in time count. I know a lot of these folks actually lived here in, in homes before they ended up homeless. Over 50% of the people we surveyed year after year actually grew up in Santa Barbara and lived here before they became homeless. And it's a failure of a lot of different systems, whether it's our healthcare system or our um, mental health system or just social systems uh, causing the increases in, in homelessness. And then you have um, you know, a lot of people that were one check paycheck away from becoming homeless, and then um, they, they end up getting a health issue or anything else, and they, they end up being forced out of their home and end up homeless. Now, there's a, there is a segment of the homeless population that, um, you know, that has a lot of mental health issues, um, and we need to provide the help there uh, and the proper housing. We need to provide the proper housing. What's pictured behind me uh, on, on my screen is El Carrillo. And we built that uh, 15 years ago. It was the first permanent supportive housing development in Santa Barbara County serving those who are moving from homelessness. And it's one of the most beautiful developments in Santa Barbara. And it's one of the most dense in Santa Barbara at 122 units per acre. But it's something we provided and we've been able to provide stability for the people who are moving from homelessness and provide, stabilize them. And then they're able to either move to um, a more permanent, uh, larger, uh, less uh, uh, supportive services entrenched type of development and more independent living after they become stabilized. And it's been a terrific success. Frankly, we need 10 more El Carrillos um, throughout Santa Barbara. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a myth. I, I know I've heard some people saying that, you know, um, people are holding on to their homes, holding on to their wealth so that 
new generations can't afford, there's not enough access to inventory to buy. And, you know, I grew up here and uh, I can tell you right now, for those of us whose parents did not own homes, whose parents rented, um, all of us were driven out of the community, you know, the locals, you know, um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate enough that, um, you know, that I it didn't happen with me, but a lot of my friends, um, you know, can't afford to live here, the people I went to high school with. And, you know, it, it isn't as though, um, you know, uh, everybody who, who's in Santa Barbara owned a home, his parents owned a home when they grew up here. A lot of, most of us nice. didn't. And most of us, had to move elsewhere and uh you know it's it's just um, this puzzle like no everybody has to figure out how to do it on their own it's like survival of the fittest you know almost but you know i think your point is a really good one that locals who grew up here can't afford to live here if their parents didn't own a home and so now you've got like this new generation of people say, well, I should be able to afford to live here too. It's like, well, yes, but so many of us were <laughs> driven out before you. It's this, it's very complicated. You know, it isn't just something that happened five years ago. It's been going on for, for a long time. I wrote about a project uh, recently on North Lacumbra Street. I think it was a 48 unit housing that um, went to the uh, ABR uh, can you talk about mm-hmm. that project? And then you already mentioned El Carrillo. Talk about some of the work that the housing authority is doing to address this issue. Yeah, sure. Um, so that that development up on uh, Upper Lacumbra, 200, 210 North Lacumbra that you mentioned, it's something that we're really excited about. We don't have a name like we typically name developments like El Carrillo for that property yet, but it's... Um, it's a 48, as it's currently drawn out now, 48 unit development, large family development, meaning uh, larger bedroom sizes. 25% of the units are three bedroom units. And then another portion of the development uh, of the development are two bedroom units and a small number of one bedrooms uh, that we're planning to put in there as well um, with a community room, um, uh, it's courtyard style development inside to where there's uh, play areas for the kids, um, uh, uh, raised planters for vegetable gardens. And why we're excited about that development is for the last 15 years or so, we've been focusing our new developments on special needs like homeless, veterans housing, senior housing developments, but not housing for families, aside from the vouchers that we issue. And there's such a need for affordable housing for families with kids. So that's what we're planning there. It's in a great school district to provide opportunities for kids to go um, to uh, get their education in a good school district. It's in a higher income area. When you look at Santa Barbara, the um, the San Roque, Upper Lacumbra area is, is higher income. So it's, it's an area that we thought was perfect for planning more family units. And uh, we, that concept hearing, we went to the ABR on, we received really good feedback. Um, we're taking design inspiration from the neighboring farmhouse design. So it's not your um, typical Santa Barbara um, uh, mission style type development. It's, it's farmhouse style and it fits in with the neighborhood 
um, we, we like to pride ourselves on our developments of not only fitting in, but improving the neighborhood and revitalizing the neighborhood. And that's something we believe we'll be doing with that development. We are taking advantage of a state law called SB 330 on that development and state bonus density, which um, it allows us essentially to not have any um, constraints on density. We could put many more units on that on that lot without being constrained by this city of Santa Barbara, but we're doing it um, by looking at really what fits in the neighborhood with parking and uh, that's needed and the number of units. So we don't come in overbearing on with the neighborhood on what we propose. Um, so, and part of that state law allows us to only go through a maximum of five hearings uh, for review. And uh, we don't have to go to planning commission for that development. It's just uh, essentially um, architectural board of review uh, for, for their approvals on that development. So that's something that we're excited to take through. Um, now we're not disregarding what the city needs or what the what should be done there. That's why you, uh, we look forward to the, the comments that the ABR provides to make the development better. Every development that we've taken through um, the city design review board it's actually made our developments better having those comments, you know, uh, making the uh, articulation of the elevation a little bit better so it's not boring and it and it makes it a more livable community for the development so that we, we try to do that with everything. Um, I'd love to now segue to another development that we've been working on uh, for the last few years uh, on the Carrillo Castillo commuter lot. You'll recall that we proposed a few years ago also putting tiny homes on that lot temporarily uh, with a lot of um, community uh, feedback that know that they don't want that there. Uh, and I think you're going to get that anywhere you, you say we're going to put tiny homes yeah. for, for the homeless. We, we think we would have done a very good job with doing that temporarily at that location and providing, uh, taking into account the community's concerns with security, but they, we heard them, they didn't want it. We didn't get the funding that was needed to make, to do that development correctly on the tiny homes. So instead we had already, before that even came up, the housing authority has been looking at city owned lots for providing, uh, housing and, uh, we heard from the local community that they don't want affordable housing there. They want housing, you know, low income housing. They wanted it for the missing middle. Those that don't qualify for capital A affordable housing, be, meaning that 80% area median income and below that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, but they also can't, whoops, <laughs> sorry. They also can't afford uh, market rate. So it's that, that's what's that missing middle. It's usually, it's, Typically, we define it as the 80 to, to 120. Uh, so we've been working with the city on creating a development there. We're looking at about 68 units on site there um, that will uh, provide housing for people that are, are downtown workforce that can't afford to live in the community. They have to commute in every day. They would be, uh, it would be a mix of studios, one bedrooms and two bedrooms. And um, the big 
piece of this though is there's no funding available to create that type of housing. There's plenty of subsidy, although hard fought for capital A, low income affordable housing through the low income housing tax credit program, the federal home program that provides funding and other state uh, housing and community development grants, but nothing really uh, for providing funding equity for this missing middle to construct the needed units. So we've been working with um, uh, a local, uh, an altruistic investment firm that's willing to put in the equity uh, that's needed about $20 million to provide for the construct. The city would put in the land and this altruistic investment firm would put in the $20 million and then we can move forward with it. And we're, we're we're almost there now to where we're, we're planning on coming back to city council very soon to get approval to move that, that forward right. and then go through the entitlement process as quickly as we can and get that project built. We did hold a community meeting almost a year ago now with, with the community on what we were planning there. And we showed them three different uh, scenarios that one maximizing the density at over uh, 100 units, and then one at about 75 units, and then this one at about 68 units. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the sweet spot with the parking that's needed and, um, and what the community can tolerate with what we would put in there being a, a, a three and four story development. Right. You'll have to lose a lot of those trees there, I imagine. Um, that's a unique. We would, you know, that that is, you know, it has a beautiful tree canopy on the lot. Um, with uh, forget the name of the trees right now. The perimeter has some jacarandas, but the other that uh, I'm losing it right now. But beautiful tree canopy, as you mentioned, we would have to lose a great deal of them in the center of that development. Uh, but we would keep the, the perimeter uh, trees and add in some other trees along the creek yeah. there um, to, um, to provide some screening. But uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a balance, you know, of, of looking at what do we need in the city? That parking lot is never full. Drive by it any day of the week. It's never full. It's uh, they can reallocate uh, some of that parking to other um, uh, surface parking lots, and we could build needed housing homes for the missing middle. Those folks that again don't aren't low income. They don't qualify for our, our other typical developments that we build, and they can't afford the market rate units either. So. So that's one we're really excited about. Sure. One more <laughs> that, sure. that uh, we, um, we just received tax credit funding on is 116 East Coda Street. Okay. Um, this was a development that was um, uh, received approvals. Uh, a private develop, developer owned it and they received uh, approvals under the AUD to build 15 market rate two bedroom units on the property. And it's right next to um, the park. And um, we, uh, we were able to negotiate with that developer and uh, purchase the property uh, with those entitlements to build the 15 
those 15 two bedroom units, but we needed more. We wanted to serve people moving from homelessness like El Carrillo behind me. And um, we took that same building envelope uh, of the 15 units, kept the same architecture, but split up those two bedroom units into studios where now we're gonna be providing 28 studio units uh, for people moving from homelessness with on-site supportive services, community room. Um, it'll be a great development and we're beginning construction in September of this year. So we're really excited about getting that one underway. Yeah, that's amazing. That's quite the switch from the market, smaller, fewer market rate to something, yes. you know, much, you know, for more people, accommodating more people in yeah. the community. Can you talk about um, some of the state legislation? You know, we've seen increasingly in recent years, the state passing law or attempting to pass laws that force local communities to build more. And there's this pushback, of course, with local communities saying, you know, we need more local control. There's not a one size fits all. The state is saying, well, you, you, you need to do something because you're not building enough. And without this sort of push, nothing's going to happen or not enough at a fast enough pace is going to happen. Can you talk about SB9 and SB10 and sort of uh, what those are and, and what the real uh, concerns are regarding one of those bills? Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, there's been, you know, over the past few years, there's been a host of housing packages of bills introduced at the state level um, to, to answer, to provide answers to the needed housing. I, I said there's a deficit of three and a half million homes needed throughout California that haven't been provided. So the state legislature has finally said, look, we're going to force um, some laws to the local jurisdictions because the local jurisdictions aren't meeting their regional housing needs allocation numbers. And so um, two, two bills that are working their way through the state legislature now are SB9 and SB10. SB9 by Senator Atkins is a bill that essentially in urbanized areas uh, gets rid of single family zoning. It would, if passed as, as currently amended, this bill would um, allow owners of single family uh, units on single family uh, lots to either split their lots into two, two separate legal lots and build another home on the, the new lot or just add a duplex on the existing lot. So if an owner took the, uh, the lot and split it and added another home, they could add an ADU to each lot where now they're, they're building four units on what currently exists on, uh, as a single family home mm. on the lot. Now there are a series of constraints where um, you wouldn't, uh, an owner wouldn't be allowed to do that. It, again, if they're not in an urbanized area, if they're not, um, if they're in an environmentally um, uh, sensitive area, um, such as a high fired area, a flood zone area, they wouldn't be allowed to do this. But otherwise, uh, if this bill is passed, they will be, uh, owners would be allowed to do that. So it's a, it's a serious upzoning from one unit up to four units. So what would that do? That would one increase um, probably property uh, values and costs 
when you upzone, that's what happens, but you also get more housing units that are desperately needed. Um, a lot of local jurisdictions are very much against this bill because it takes away that local control, the local zoning control. Historically, local zoning control has been left at the local level because the local jurisdiction knows what fits best where. But because the housing hasn't been produced in certain areas, uh, these types of bills are being introduced and, and we're probably going to continue to see these types of bills being introduced and passed until the housing that's needed is produced. So I know the, the League of California Cities have, has come out against it, this bill. Personally, I, I see some flaws in this bill as well. Um, there, the bill doesn't provide for any requirements of affordable housing. Um, you know, in Santa Barbara, what we're seeing built, aside from what the housing authority provides, is market rate housing, not middle income housing, not moderate, not affordable. You're, the private development communities are, are, are building market rate housing. We, we need more affordable housing, and I would have liked to have seen some affordability requirements on these uh, duplexes that are being, at least for a number of years, um, to be provided. Um, but I do think it's an opportunity um, in some areas if the bills are tweaked uh, to provide housing. The other bill that you mentioned, SB 10 by Senator Weiner, is more of a permissive bill. It's not you shall do this uh, local community. It's more you may do this local community if you desire. And it would allow for uh, a local jurisdiction to rezone a lot uh, to allow for 10 residential units on the lot without going through CEQA. And it would also provide, which stands for the California Environmental Quality Act. And CEQA has its place for ensuring that you're not harming the environment with your new development, but also um, a lot of NIMBY organizations and individuals have used CEQA to stop affordable housing developments in the past. So um, a lot of these bills we're seeing are allowing um, the, the new lots that would be proposed like, like SB 10, the 10, lot, 10 units on a lot, to bypass CEQA and allow for ministerial approval at the local jurisdiction. But again, SB 10 is more of a may, it's not you shall do this, it's, it's being left up to the local jurisdiction if they want to adopt it. And again, it has to be in an urbanized area uh, near local transit to do this. So it's not going into you know, more of your rule type, you know, it wouldn't be going up into the, to the Riviera and allowing 10 units on a lot. That, that wouldn't be possible, but more in your downtown area would allow for that. There, there are some who say that even though Santa Barbara has not been building affordable, you know, recently they included the inclusionary component with the AUD, but they say what it allows people to move up in the housing chain. So if you're renting something less affordable or, or more affordable, and then you move up to the more expensive place, then it opens up some housing. Is that real? Or is that just a, is that just a, like an economics argument that people make to justify building market rate housing? What, what do you think? 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, uh, theoretically it would work, right? If um, uh, it, uh, if you had um, these market rate units being rented to people that are currently renting those um, older existing homes. But what I've been seeing and been talking to a, a lot of our local uh, real estate professionals is that once these new units are, are built and developed, they're being rented to people moving into the area from out of the area. They're being, uh, even to people just rent, rent leasing a unit long-term lease, but using it as a, as a weekend getaway um, from the LA community. Um, and we're seeing those rents, you know, of these new development, these two bedrooms uh, being rented for $5,500 uh, per month is what the cost is. So uh, a lot of the people that, that would move from their existing older units, they can't afford that. So I'm not, we're, I'm not seeing that natural ladder progression that people use right. as a, as a justification. Also, um, you know, I don't, you know, I would love to see more inclusionary be required. Uh, and there's been that discussion at the planning commission level and recently at the city council level um, for inclusionary, you know, increasing the 15% outside of the uh, central business district. Um, you know, I, I would love to see more inclusionary be required. I want to, I would like to see it based on uh, data. And that's where, you know, I, I know uh, council member uh, Snedden and a couple of others wanted to move forward with that 15% inclusionary right now. Um, but I don't want to see development be turned off and uh, not get any of that 10% developed just because we're increasing it to 15%. I want to see that it's, it's actually feasible um, through the study that they're doing. And hopefully, if the city can get that study done quickly, um, we're not going to lose a lot of opportunity between now and October when that study is done uh, to see that, yes, we can go to the 15% and not have a problem, you know, and I know other council members have wanted to see higher inclusionary, you know, if, if in my, um, in my utopian world, I would love to see affordable housing for every income level and housing provided for everybody, but we're not going to see that the 10% inclusionary that's, that's in effect now, you know, how, how many market rate units would it take to get just 80 units? It would take us to build 800 market rate units to get the 80 inclusionary. We're not going to get, it's going to take years to get what's needed. We need, we need more incentives rather than the carrot to have developers create more inclusionary. Um, I would love to see fee reductions uh, on fees to the developers if they agree to, to uh, have kind of a, a, an increasing scale of allow them more units if they build a certain percentage of, in, of inclusionary. You know, if they build 25% of the development and inclusionary, allow them some more units and give them some more um, uh, fee reductions, what, you know, on 
on development fees. Development fees, even for affordable housing, are, are it'll, they'll make your head spin, the, the amount of uh, the fees. We paid a half a million dollars for our Gardens on Hope, our 90-unit senior development that we just finished on Hope Avenue, a half a million dollars in fees that we paid. Wow. That if you could say, take a chunk of that and build more units instead of fees, that, that would make sense. Right. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about you personally. I know that a, a little more than a year ago, I asked you to be on the podcast and um, you were dealing with some health issues at that time. And I'm really happy that you're doing better and uh, you're uh, turned the corner. Uh, but I want to let you sort of talk about it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, specifically your health issue in the last year and um, just how you've been working through that? Yeah, yes. Um, so it was a scary time for, for me last year. It was right around when we had the, um, the pandemic uh, uh, shut everything down is when I was also diagnosed with um, stage four uh, squamous cell carcinoma that's run, traveling along uh, a trigeminal nerve in my face and it's something very rare they hardly ever see it and it was moving back toward the base of my brain so immediately they um got me and my doctors got me in for um for treatment uh on chemotherapy and radiation i had to drive down daily to los angeles for that and um thankfully my my rock of my world, my wife was able to take some time off and drive me every single day um, for those treatments and, um, and help me through that difficult time. You know, chemo is no fun for anybody that's been through that. And it's, uh, uh, so I went through that. And then in January of this year, that was in the fall in January of this year, uh, I got some updated scans and it, and I was still having some weird feeling in my face and it was showed that the cancer was still there. It didn't do the job, the, the radiation and the chemo. And, um, so they, the doctor said they gave me the maximum radiation they could give me when they did in the chemo. So uh, they got me on a uh, new type of immuno, immunotherapy drug that's called um, Libtio. And if you've heard commercials probably on TV talk about uh, Keytruda to extend your life, well, that's what they have. It's a similar type of drug that attacks the type of cancer I have with my own immune system. And I've been on that for several months now. And the latest scans I have seem to appear that it's working. So um, we're going to keep on that. And it's kept the cancer at bay. I'm feeling good. I've been at work actually since the end of last year because I love what I do. It, it helps ground me and helps, you know, I'm, the housing authority, we're mission driven. And I love the mission that we do of, of improving our community, providing the affordable housing. And I think it's actually helped my health to get back to work, um, at least my psyche. And um, you know, I want to give a shout out to my entire team at the Housing Authority. Uh, I couldn't have done it without them, Josh. You know, we have a we have a great team uh, there. They, if any one of us are, are down for the count, we all fill in where it's needed, and they certainly fell in for me and for the community during the pandemic 
we didn't miss a beat. We kept issuing vouchers. We kept providing the housing. We finished um, uh, Gardens on Hope and filled up the place with vulnerable seniors, many of them homeless into Gardens on Hope. Would love to give you a tour of that facility, um, that home for seniors someday. It's beautiful, but that was all due to the team doing all that work. They did a fantastic job. So I've been through the ringer. A lot of people have been through worse than me. You know, my, um, my friend, our, 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 you know, legendary Hal Conklin went through the very same type, not type of cancer, but, you know, in the same area. And um, I know a lot of people go through a lot, went through a lot worse and some didn't make it. And, I'm just thankful that I, I made it and I'm able to carry on and do some work for the community. Yeah, well, that's great. I, I, I'm glad that you found something that is working and I hope it continues to work. And, you know, I think uh, what you do at the housing authority and what your entire team does sort of universally is uh, supported, appreciated. Uh, you know, you talk about your projects um, blending in to the community and, you know, that's through architecture. It's also through mm-hmm. excellent site location and i know that's a big part of what you do is you um try to do the best to fit the need but you try to do it also so that it has the least impacts on a on a neighborhood and uh, so there's a lot of thoughtfulness and and sensitivity to that as well but uh you know i mean everything the housing authority does i think everyone's super appreciative of that role that, that you that you play um in the community and uh, most people drive by these units and or these homes and don't even know they're there unless they're pointed out, you know, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Or or they it's the best looking uh, building on on the block. You know, we'll have we have people drive into our garden court development, which is another development for seniors. And um, uh, they drive in and thinking they want to check for a vacancy to check into the ho- bed and breakfast for the weekend uh, because it <laughs> looks that nice and inviting. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going to uh, just give you the last word here, Rob. We've talked about a lot, but if you could just sort of talk, um, you know, forward thinking about the need for uh, traditional affordable housing with, you know, capital A, I guess it's called uh, what the housing yep. authority does and more so um, speak to um, attitudes, perceptions, uh, uh, last word here, let's stop the fight over this, right? How can we work together so that we can um, house as many people as possible, knowing that it's never ending, right? No, no, no community is ever going to solve it, but you got to do the best you can. But let me give you the last word to talk about that importance. Yeah, we'll do it. I think uh, you had the perfect words there. Like, let's stop the fight. That's, that's really what we have to do. And Santa Barbara, um, is steeped in history of uh, providing, having a beautiful community where people want to live and can live. I want to see Santa Barbara continue to do that. You know, we're going to have a lot of um, transformational changes in along the uh, central business district, the downtown area. 
I want to see um, that area include housing, but not just for market rate, but have it inclusive for the person that works downstairs in the restaurant or at the retail facility and uh, or, you know, the per people who can afford a little bit higher market rate or the middle income. I want to see it blended into the community. And we really do have to stop the no every time a development is, is proposed in different areas in, in the city. We have to look at the ways, okay, well, we know we need it. How can we make it better for the community at that sited location so that it does have minimal negative impact, but a major positive impact on the community, both for the people that live there or for the people that will be living there. We have to come together to look at solutions uh, on on all these different areas, you know, we're gonna, there's gonna be the conversation about um, floor to area ratios uh, moving forward and, and how big those should be for developments. Well, you know, we all are gonna come at this at diff different viewpoints from the development community to the environmentalists, to the, the nonprofits uh, builders like, like our housing authority, um, but we need to work together um, to find the solutions and to say, yes, this can be done here if we do this. If we tweak it here, tweak it there, it can be done. Um, you know, I, I just, I really want to see Santa Barbara continue to be the jewel that everyone holds it up to be um, throughout the world, even that it's a beautiful place. But it, we need to have it be a, um, uh, a place where we have equality and inclusiveness. And if we don't have that, um, we're not gonna have that, that place that's held up as a jewel. So. Well said, Rob, I appreciate your time and um, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks for making time and good luck to you professionally and, and personally. Thank you, Josh, appreciate the time. Thank you.